greetings, greetings, greetings. Today's read of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, written by Mali Doma Some, Chapter 9, The Long Journey Begins. The cup was full. It had to be drunk, bitter as it was. The impulse to raise my hand against my superior had triggered an unstoppable flow of events, pushing me like an avalanche toward the chasm of the unknown. In retrospect, my actions seem inevitable. Inside me was a void of rage so deep, so carefully nurtured over the past 15 years that I could have done nothing else, finally, but respond to violence with violence. Father Joe had trapped me in my pride. I read my fate in the sepulchral faces of my classmates. In an instant, I had lost one identity and acquired another, and I felt as alone as I had ever been before. Nothing could change the course of things as they stood. In a moment of excess, I had inadvertently ceased to belong to the seminary. This realization echoed in me endlessly, forecasting immense tribulations ahead. Father Joe was sitting in the dirt, trying to get up. He was grimacing like a monkey, and his white robe was pierced all over by thorns and stalks of wire grass. A crowd was slowly gathering around him. Students from the lower division next door who had heard the noise of the argument, followed by the sound of breaking glass and Father Joe's cry as he fell. They were more fascinated by the spectacle of a priest wearing a formerly immaculate soutane sitting on the dusty ground than curious about how he had got there. Inside the classroom, the students were still standing. Their consternation seemed to have worked a paralysis on their nervous systems. I, on the other hand, felt an urgent need to end the suspense I had created by my impetuous actions. I stood there, sweating, facing my dumbfounded schoolmates, my confusion rising in proportion to their apprehension. I began to speak partly to myself to keep my blood flowing and partly to make a show of composure. Friends, I have committed a sin of the most terrible nature vastly worse than those we have been allowed to take to the confessional every other Friday. I do not think any priest will mediate for me in any attempt I make to seek divine forgiveness. I have attacked God by attacking his closest ally. I didn't mean to do this. I still can't believe it has happened to me. Can no one help me? I feel so alone. I wanted help from my closest friends, but I knew they couldn't offer it because there are certain limits beyond which help is impossible. I was too numb to even feel pity for myself. For a while, I stood there looking stupid. Antoine was crying, but in a rather manly fashion. He made no sounds, but I knew that the two lines of tears running down his cheeks were for me. I bowed my head, as if I were a bottle just emptied of its contents and made useless as a result. Words died out of me. Where are you going? inquired Robert in a tone that suggested that he was desperately seeking some sort of compromise. He was the first to regain his wits and was now trying to play the role of mediator. This was just an accident. We all saw it. We'll back you up in front of Father Superior. 
At the worst, you'll get away with a series of minor punishments. Don't be so dramatic. Though I wanted to believe what he said, I realized there could be no mercy for anyone who attacked a priest in a seminary. Nothing like this had ever happened before at Nancy. I would be seen as a godless savage who had willfully resisted the purifying powers of this Christian institution and returned to the uncouth primitivism of his original state. I don't know what to do, I said vaguely. My mind was racing. I suppose I should put as much distance as possible between me and this place. Stay, cried Francois. Hell, we are all sinners here, right? He was looking at everybody in the classroom as if seeking agreement from them. There were murmurs of approval, or were they of disapproval? By this time, I didn't care. I had run out of answers. With death in my heart, I crossed the threshold of the classroom, knowing that I would never be able to return. Meanwhile, the crowd had thickened around Father Joe. A few were helping him clean up his soutane, while others watched the procedure piously, arms folded. Was the presence of all these witnesses the reason he didn't leap back and through the window to kill me? No one seemed to notice my departure. The classroom was less than 50 meters from the latrines, which were built a few meters from the outer rim of the seminary. Beyond the latrines was a semi-jungle of trees and tall grass, easy to disappear. Every step toward the wild outer rim of the seminary seemed like a step toward doom, dragging me backward in time. In front of me was the infinite green mystery of the jungle, speaking a language I could not decipher. Behind was the sealed door of a haven of security and protection that had suddenly been transformed into an inimical alien world. My first taste of freedom made me wish that I had never wanted to be free. I was frightened by the immensity of the jungle, its silent and cold invitation, now that I had the opportunity to respond to the longing to go home, had I lost faith all of a sudden? Was I fearful because for the first time in 16 years, I was expected to make my own decisions about what to do and where to go for the rest of my life? If I had gambled on the odds and stayed in the seminary, I asked myself, wouldn't that have been better than my present mess? Surely my classmates and Father Michael would have supported me. I felt stupid for having acted in haste. I felt angry at myself for attacking a priest and leaving without being asked to. But even if I could return, what would I say? To have nothing to do and no one to answer to is a frightening thing. Here I was, facing the world and yet incapable of assuming my own freedom. When I finally moved on, it was only because I heard voices behind me. Without thinking, I walked into the jungle to avoid being seen. Thus, I began my voyage home. All I knew was that home was east. How far east? I couldn't tell. The jungle was not too dense, and I could see reasonably far ahead of me. The late morning sun was ablaze in the savannah blue sky. 
Promising great heat, I walked steadily eastward as if trying to complete one of those assignments we were given in the seminary every morning before eight o'clock, which we had to do without any thought. Here and there, unrecognizable natural sounds reminded me of the precariousness of my situation. Images of the comforts left behind rushed through my mind. The quiet orange groves and banana plantations of the seminary, the arrays of flowers on either side of its meditation trails, the comforting thought of a meal always at hand whenever one was hungry, and the security of a bed to rest on when one was tired. Why had I ever left? What could possibly replace the life I had grown accustomed to over the last 16 years? I felt like a domesticated beast abruptly released into the jungle. I had lost my vital instincts, but I decided as long as the sun was up there bright and hot and I could still see where I was going, I would keep moving. My white seminarian's shirt was soon soaked with sweat. The forest was still, as if petrified by the heat of the flaming sun. This deep silence created something like a vacuum inside me, filling me with images of a new world about to be created the split second I became aware of it. I was thirsty. Maybe I was seeing things. The sound of an insect broke the trance of suspense I was walking in and brought me back to the stark reality of my desertion. As the sun traveled down the vast blue sky toward the horizon, I came to a wide open dirt road. Judging by the position of the sun and the direction of my own shadow, it ran east to west. I walked along the edge of it until the sound of an engine caught my attention. Far behind me I could see a huge cloud of red dust, indicating that the vehicle was a truck. If it was one of the huge trucks used to bring supplies to the seminary, it would probably be piloted by one of the priests. The thought of being seen sent a chill through me that ran like lightning down my spine. I instinctively hid myself behind a tree and waited for the truck to pass. Soon, I could see the driver busy at the wheel, trying to keep the huge machine straight and avoid the holes and heaps of sand that crowded the highway. Though I did not know his name, I saw that he was a priest. Seated next to him was Blaze, the cook. They were probably on their way to the nearest supply center. How far could that be, I wondered. Were there a lot of people there? Could I get there before sunset? The truck roared past me, covering my white uniform with red dust. For a while, I could see nothing. Up ahead, I heard the engine wail and groan and emit a series of frightening explosions. Then its noise receded rapidly. rapidly. The heavy silence of the bush was restored. I resumed my journey, hoping that at least this road would take me to an inhabited place where I could get some information about my whereabouts. To avoid the thick dust, I moved to a trail that ran parallel to the highway, and that kept it carefully in sight. I walked, aware of nothing but the unspecifiable distance I was covering, till the sun disappeared behind a far mountain. The narrow trail I was following became faint, then almost invisible in the twilight. Countless sounds came from everywhere, welcoming the fall of the dew, and my shoes became progressively more wet as I walked. The cool that evening, the cool that evening brought, seemed to have an invigorating effect on the jungle. Its moisture awoke thousands of insects that became noisier the darker it got. 
I realized that I had walked a whole day without eating. My mind was so crowded by thoughts, my body so stiff and soaked with sweat that I could not even think about what I was going to do when complete darkness fell and I had to sleep. Very soon, it became impossible to go any farther. The night was dark as charcoal. I felt as if I were walking with my eyes tightly closed. The crisis that had provided the impetus to keep moving all day was far behind me now. My motivation to keep going was being undermined by hunger, fear, loneliness, and a desolate sense of homelessness. I had to gain a sense of direction and control. Two things were becoming more important than anything else, food and rest. But for a person accustomed since birth to having these needs met by other people, it was not natural to think creatively about how to obtain them for oneself. In the seminary, when one felt hunger, there was always the guarantee of a meal within the next hour or so. After all these years, my system was like a clock that would register hunger shortly after morning mass. Then, later after the Angelus at noontime, and in the evening prior to Vespers. But these were sweet triggers because the food was always there. Imagining the good meals I had enjoyed at the refectory only worsened the experience and enhanced the fear I was beginning to feel. What was I supposed to do with this fear? What was I supposed to do with my hunger and thirst? While I walked, I thought about food. It was getting harder and harder to move my body. Each step was beginning to require all my attention, and my progress had slowed dramatically since dark. I finally, de- I finally decided that the need for rest was more urgent than the desire for food and more easily available. I quickly filled my arms with some fresh leaves from the dwarf trees I walked past and soon had enough of them to make a bed. Big trees were everywhere. I picked the closest, dropped my leaves beneath it, and sat on them with my back against the trunk and my legs outstretched. At that moment, I felt all the weight of stress and fear and exhaustion register in my body in a way that nailed me stiff where I was. I tried to stay awake a while longer to sort out some of my most urgent thoughts, but sleep was coming upon me fast. Fleetingly, I wondered how safe I was at night in the middle of the bush. An immense bird was flying toward me from the south. Its wings were spread very wide on either side of its slender, muscular body, and it prepared to land on me. The movement of its wings produced a fan-like wind that quickly chilled my body. My first thought was to somehow hide on the other side of the tree to avoid being hurt by this huge and frightening creature that had erupted out of nowhere. But I couldn't move. I had lost control of my senses. My mind was still operating, but my body had ceased to be connected to it. The bird grasped me by the shoulders and emitted a shrieking noise as it took off with me hanging underneath. It was so dark, I couldn't tell where that I was being taken to, but I knew we were covering a great distance. Then, as if by enchantment, all of this vanished, and I found myself sitting on a soft, hairy body that somehow felt very familiar. To make sure it was a body, I ran my hand up and down it and pulled out some hair. I also felt as if a wet sponge were being applied to my face, and that my body was producing a cool sensation. I could feel myself sleeping, yet I had no power to open my eyes to see what was going on. I felt no fear and no sense of hurry. 
the sensation of being taken care of canceled out every instinct to try and find out what was really happening to me. I heard voices. Or was it just a voice? I didn't understand what it was saying, but it spoke for a very long time as if reciting some discourse in an obscure language. The strangeness of the language didn't frighten me. Nothing in the tone of the voice did, asleep or awake. I could feel myself profoundly participating in the restoration of my fatigued body, as if I were a hungry person imbibing a good meal. I was enjoying the experience, and I liked the homey sensations it generated. I had buried the hardships of the day in an experience that, though strange, was comforting. When I woke up, it was almost dawn, and the surf's rays were trekking across the skies. I didn't know where I was until I tried to move and found out I was sore all over. It was then that the memory of the dream rushed back into me with great clarity. I looked about as if remembering something I just finished doing. Scattered, all around and over me were soft feathers mixed with hair. The tree under which I had slept had been freshly scattered, fresh, freshly scratched, wow, by something large, as if someone had battered the trunk with a powerful tool. In some places, the bark had been peeled off, leaving fresh, gaping wounds on the trunk. I stood up and stretched, feeling my muscles ache with the pain of my long march away from the seminary. It had been an agitated night. I could scarcely believe I had, I had had such incoherent and hallucinatory dreams. They were the kinds of images that come to one as an expression of excessive fatigue. But had something real also happened? I couldn't explain the presence of the feathers and the hair on the ground all around me. What about the bird that had flown away with me and the hairy thing that had touched me as if it knew me? In spite of my initial fear, I remembered comfort, the kind of comfort that puts the mind to rest from its torments. In a very real way, I was still drawing support from the dream as if a powerful, nurturing presence lingered nearby. I convinced myself that something good was following me, looking out for me, that an ungraspable force was expressing itself around me. Maybe it had always been there, but I had not been able to perceive it because too much but I had not been able to perceive it because too much had been distracting me in my old life. The incident presented me with a great puzzle, but the puzzle did not feel like a challenge. To resolve it, I felt I had only to stick with my commitment to keep going amid the silence of the tropical flora in the deep mystery of its bosom. Thoughts of my home reminded me of the horrendous reality of my situation. I was lost, sandwiched between a past that had utterly forgotten me and a future that was undecided. began to walk toward the rising sun. The fresh air of the morning was powerful, but it reminded me of my hunger. If only I could eat something I thought over and over. My mouth felt as if it were plastered with a layer of a sticky substance I could not get rid of. I kept thinking of a good toothbrush and some sweet Colgate toothpaste. But where in the jungle could I find the running water that is so important for brushing your teeth? 
Then I remembered that my father used to have a fresh twig stuck in his mouth when he was not eating. His constant chewing of it obliged him to spit frequently. What tree was it whose branch he used as a toothbrush? I decided to try out some fresh twigs just to see how they would work. By this time, the sun had risen behind all the tall trees. Its rays sporadically stole through their foliage, coloring the forest with enigmatic patterns of light and dark. The trees around me were getting thicker and thicker. Their leafy branches gave me a canopy of cool darkness. The grass was getting rarer and rarer. I found a small tree and broke off one of its branches, revealing a whitish interior. I sliced the upper part away and kept a short piece. At first, chewing was hard and the wood tasted bitter, but the bitterness was better than my sticky mouth. The more I chewed, the more watery my mouth turned, and I swallowed every bit of it. I was uncertain about whether I was going the right way, yet I didn't have any better ideas. In front of me, I noticed a tree loaded with fruits that looked like oranges. Their bright color exerted a powerful attraction, but I found out that they were either inedible or not yet ripe. They were very sour and resisted every bite. The sight of a fruit tree alleviated my panic somewhat, however, reminded me that I was, after all, in the bush, where natural food was plentiful. I began to look harder and harder as I walked. Almost one tree out of ten carried some fruits, but most hung high above my head, defying my curiosity and my hunger that, seeing the possibility of fulfillment, raged more and more inside of me. Fully occupied with my hunger, I had discontinued dwelling on my fate. I began to feel like it was perfectly natural to be out there in the middle of nowhere, trying to go somewhere. Is this the first sweet taste of freedom? I thought back to the seminary, now lost in the jungle far behind me. Looking at my wristwatch, I saw that it was 7.45. I imagined the mechanical operation of hundreds of lives as they listened to the end of the morning mass. They were all thinking about the warm rice porridge waiting for them at breakfast. But before they could eat, they would have to go through physical training, a time most of us despised. My progress slowed as I moved into the mountains. As I reached the top of the first one, I realized I was close to a town. The setting sun was shedding its light on countless roofs, which reflected back into my eyes, making it too bright for me to see anything distinctly but the town was definitely there, a few kilometers down in front of me, the reddish thread of another dirt highway bisecting the one I was following glowed to the north. It too was going toward the rows of shining tin roofs in the middle of the valley. of town. It was almost dark. The houses looked miserable and small. It was a suburban shanty town. I was exhausted, dusty and desperate to know my whereabouts. This town was very different from anything I had seen before. First of all, there were no nearby farms. 
The town was full of streets, and each street was lined with houses, one next to the other. In every direction, people were walking or driving or riding bicycles or mopeds. People walked in groups most of the time, groups that paid little attention to one another. I was anonymous. Nobody cared who I was. In a sense, it was comforting not to be asked questions, not to be exposed as a deserter from the divine. I was invisible as long as I looked like everybody else. The road that had taken me into town had become a dirt street, then a paved street that ended in a square where several streets met. On the far side of the square was a street that went east. There was no sidewalk alongside it, just dirt covered with scattered city debris, some of it hidden in the grass. The stench of human excrement and other rotting things filled the evening air. Soon, I was walking under tall trees that lined a paved street, straight and dark. As I walked, my path was lighted by the clear obscure diffused by courtyard lamps from the rows of dwellings. Everywhere around me there was life. Now and then I heard sounds coming from the houses, the cry of a baby followed by the appeasing voice of its mother, the cries of children playing in a courtyard, and the voices of men assured me that there were other human presences around me even though they spoke in a tribal language I didn't know. In another house, a radio blasted local music so loudly that I wondered how anyone could hear anyone else. I did not realize I was the only person walking in that area until I reached another part of the street, illuminated by neon lights, and encountered other pedestrians. They were young people, tough-looking and too preoccupied with their business to notice me. They spoke French. Taking a deep breath, I hurled a swift bonsoir at four men walking in a group as I was about to pass them. They looked up briefly and returned the greeting. I asked what town it was. They stopped and looked at me with interest. I cleared my throat and asked again, What's the name of this town? One of them answered, You mean this part of Bobo? It's Wesenville, man. Where are you going? I'm going to Dano. That's far away. The station is up the street. What station? Where people take the transport to go to that part of the world? You mean there is a bus to Dano tonight? I don't know, but somebody at the east station will tell you if there are any departures tonight. How far is the station? Just another half a dozen blocks past the Lycee Wesen. I thanked the man and walked away. This town is Bobo, I thought. On the map, it is nearly a hundred kilometers from the seminary. I had walked all that distance in about two days. There was a bus station, too. I was delighted by the possibility of having a ride home. The bus station was an open dirt space where buses, cars, vans, pickups, and trucks were parked. Even though there was a streetlight, the moonlight dominated the area, giving indistinguishable shapes 
to the people. At one of the corners of the station, there was an open-air restaurant, something like a grill. A woman was selling rice and fried fish while a man was busy grilling meat. Scattered around the area were men and women in transit. I asked the man at the grill, Where is the bus to Dano? The man replied in a tribal language I did not understand, but he seemed to have understood my question, which was posed in French. He pointed to a nearby truck. A tough-looking man was loading fat burlap sacks, probably full of millet. The cargo area of the truck was of wood and steel. It did not have a roof, but a metal structure arched over it that looked like it could be covered with canvas. One man was standing in the truck while the other stood on the ground, hurling merchandise up to him with with split-second timing. I waited till they stopped to ask if he was going to Dino. The man on the ground nodded and added, We will leave as soon as the truck is full. It's 500 francs for the trip. I don't have the money, but I want to go home. Then go borrow it quick before we leave. I'm new here. I don't know anybody. That's none of my business. If you have 500 francs, you get in and you go. If you don't, go find it first. I found a place where they cooked meat over an open fire. People sat on stones with their feet in the mud while they ate. They came and left in groups, speaking loudly in a mixture of poor French and local dialects that kept changing as the groups changed. They laughed abundantly. The food was so blackened by the fire that I wondered how they knew what they were eating. No one paid any attention to me. I liked that. In an odd way, the proximity of people felt reassuring. They were present, yet absent, and they probably experienced me in the very same way. Thank you.